You love to listen to your shows, your stories. It's your personal connection to the world. So keep your love for listening alive. Visit donate.npr.org slash codeswitch to give. Then tell the world why you're passionate about listening by tweeting or posting on Facebook with hashtag WhyPublicRadio. And by the way, for all you kids watching at home, Santa just is white. You know, I mean, Jesus yeah. was a white man, too. But, you, you know, it's like... We have, he was a historical figure. I mean, that's a verifiable fact, as is Santa. I just want right. the kids watching to know that. Yes. But my point is, how do you just revise it, you know, in the middle of the legacy of the story and change Santa from white to black? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't. Megyn Kelly setting the record straight about Santa Claus and Jesus Christ on Fox News in 2013. Both white. Verifiable fact. Verifiable. 100%. You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Shereen Marisol Maraji. And I'm Gene Demby. And today is the Ask Code Switch Holiday Edition. We're going to answer some of your questions about race and the holiday season. The first one we're tackling has to do with why so many people still picture Santa as a rosy-cheeked white man. People like Megyn Kelly. <laughs> By the way, um, what made Megyn Kelly rush to defend the honor of Santa and Jesus <laughs> to defend their white virtue was this headline... Uh, Santa Claus should not be a white man anymore. It was the headline to a piece written by Aisha Harris at Slate. Some of you may know Aisha from her podcast, Represent, which deals with race and identity and representation in pop culture. Anyway, Aisha was basically making the argument in that essay that there's really not that much of a need for us to continue defaulting to this white Santa or even a human Santa for that matter. And Shireen, you actually called Aisha up. Hey. Hey. Um, I'm just going to get straight into this, all right? Cool. So what happened to you after you wrote on Slate that, quote, we should abandon Santa as fat old white man and create a symbol of Christmas cheer? From here on out, Santa Claus should be a penguin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, all hell broke loose, apparently. Um, I think I was at like a basketball game the same day I wrote that post. And then that night while I was there, my phone started blowing up and everyone's like, Megan Kelly just talked about you. And I was like, who's Megan Kelly? Like, I literally <laughs> never even heard of Megan Kelly. She had, I think, three other people come on to talk about it and didn't even bother to invite me on. So I was like, okay, let me respond on Slate. <laughs> And so that happened. And then it just sort of snowballed. I think the combination of like the fact that she said Jesus was white, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just like straight up said that it's already a slow news time, or at least like in 2013, when this came out, it was slow. <laughs> the right. Time of the holidays. Things have changed. Um, but like, so there was really nothing else for anyone to talk about. And that was what they talked about. My Twitter feed was blown up. My emails were blown up. I was, I mean, I'd been called the N-word before, but never so much and so really? many times in oh. such a short amount of time. And it was very overwhelming. I actually went into like uh, sort of like a mini depression. Oh, just I because don't it was you. like It was very overwhelming. And it was like a piece that I had intended to just be sort of like tongue in cheek yeah. and fun and, you know, making a salient point about these things, about representation, but not to the point where it would I would be getting like death threats. <laughs> Like so, but yeah, that's what happens when you write anything that relates to race, especially Santa. As, 
It's so ridiculous. What a what a weird controversy to be swept up into the middle of. Anyway, as we just heard from Aisha, you know, people get really defensive around the whiteness of fictional characters. Oh, yes. I'm looking at you, Spider-Man. Spider-Man is from Queens. So in my mind, he's Puerto Rican and Bangladeshi. <laughs> right, right. Right? Right, right, right. And now that that's settled, our Santa question is from a listener in Neosho, Missouri, who asks, quote, We know who the original Santa Claus was, Turkish St. Nicholas. But why do we still picture Santa as a white person? Now, GD, did you know that St. Nick was Turkish, like our editor, Sammy Annigan? I did not. I mean, I I didn't know that either. Does it make me a bad Catholic? Because, I mean, you know, that's what the new one says. Anyway, it turns out, as I learned, uh, St. Nicholas was actually a wealthy bishop way back in the early, early Catholic church, like the third century. He later became a patron saint for children and sailors. And legend has it that he dropped little bags of gold down people's chimneys to help them out in times of need. That historical figure, Nicholas, was from what is modern-day Turkey. Huh. Fascinating. In fact, this October, apparently, Turkish archaeologists think they uncovered his tomb underneath St. Nicholas Church, fittingly, which is in southwest Turkey. But Turkey is one of those places nobody can seem to agree on where exactly it is. Right. Is it the Middle East? Is it Western Asia? Eastern Europe? You know, it, it has all these borders. It borders Bulgaria, Greece, Georgia, Armenia, Iraq, Iran, and Syria. So, yeah, it's complicated. But let's be real. Whether they identify as white or not, and I'm talking about Turkish people, we don't often picture people from that region of the world with pale skin, rosy cheeks, rockin' furry suits. It's like the Mediterranean. It's like hot. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. So I say we at least give Santa, a.k.a. Saint Nick, Dark hair, a tan, and a red and white caftan. What do you think? (laughs) Sounds like a good look. I mean, Santa Claus, incidentally, comes Mm -hmm. from the Dutch name Sinterklaas, which is short for St. Nicholas. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Rock that Dutch. (laughs) You know what I mean? You know how we do. Uh, (laughs) A.K.A. St. Nicholas. Some of y'all may know Sinterklaas from his um, little blackface helper, (laughs) Zwarte Piet. What are you talking about? That little, this is a little, every year around Christmas time, there's a whole controversy every year around Christmas I've missed time. this controversy every year, obviously. Short story, Netherlands, they have this, Sinterklaas' little helper friend is this little brown person with like big red lips. Uh, it's like, oh, and so people in the Netherlands dress up in blackface. Anyway, it's a whole different podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Sinterklaas, though, is this old bearded white dude, red outfit, keeps a book of names of children who've been naughty and nice. Some of this sounds obviously familiar to y'all. Anyway, Dutch people came to the States. They brought Sinterklaas with them. St. Nicholas became the patron saint of New York City. What? I, I didn't know, know that right? either. You yeah, are dropping so much knowledge on me. Yeah, I mean, get on my level, Shelby. Uh <laughs> The Santa we know today in America is doesn't really get fleshed out until the 1800s. This cartoonist named Thomas Nast reimagined him as a fat man. Anyway, there's all sorts of Santa Claus analogs all over the world. They have their own riffs on this. But in America, our Santa Claus was white, just like, you know, the people who are creating him. Yes, we we like to think of this jolly old Saint Nick with his white hair and uh, his granny glasses. That's Maria Tatar. She's a professor of folklore and mythology at Harvard. But he doesn't have to be like that. You know, these are invented figures to begin with. We invent the representations, and there's no reason why they shouldn't be subject to change and to cultural variation. Look, we know people hate change, and when it comes to these characters and traditions, people often equate change with their demise. But Tatar says, when you change a childhood story, now for Aisha, it was making Santa into a penguin, (laughs) you're actually doing just the opposite. 
there's nothing sacred about a red suit with white cuffs. <laughs> so in some ways, I think I would love, for example, to see a new book or a film come out with um, a female Santa Claus. It's, uh, you know, as human beings, it's our genius. The great thing about being a human being is that you can invent, adapt, appropriate, uh, recycle, make it new, and make it more exciting and vibrant. I mean, we think of iconoclasts as, as the ones who are, you know, breaking with tradition. But in fact, they keep the traditions alive by making them new and keeping them relevant. Shereen, listen to her. It makes you wonder about all the things that we grew up with as kids, like all the things that we grew up with that were coded as white and the ways that nostalgia for those things and the desire to not have those things changed or reimagined upholds their whiteness, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, this holiday season, y'all, we implore you to go out there, embrace your own unique traditions. Maybe that means you have a Middle Eastern Santa. Maybe that means you get, you know, a Christmas succulent instead of a Christmas tree. Or maybe it means telling your family you've rejected white Jesus as your Lord and Savior. <laughs> Wait, that was kind of a hard pivot. You sound like a street corner preacher. What just happened? Don't worry. We're going to get into that after the break. Okay. Support for Code Switch and the following message come from Squarespace. Get a unique domain and create a beautiful website using Squarespace's all-in-one platform and award-winning templates. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade, ever. Visit squarespace.com to start your free trial and use offer code CODESWITCH for 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. Support also comes from Google Home. There are things you need to know in the morning, like the weather, your calendar, or the news. A personal assistant can just tell you those things, like the one built into every Google Home. Just say, hey Google, good morning, and the Google Assistant will tell you the latest forecast, traffic on your way to work, and even the headlines. It's a personalized briefing from an assistant that knows you best. It's a little help at home, like only Google can. Shireen. Jean. Code Switch. All right, we're back. We're here to settle even more of your holiday-related questions about race and identity. A little later, we're going to get into Dia de los Muertos. Yes, Adrian, we know. A little behind the schedule, a little on CP time. We know it's already (laughs) passed. But shout out to Coco. Shout out. We're also going to help those of you trying to survive the mental toll of racism during the holidays. Okay, but first... Let's get back to this question you just raised, Shireen, before the break of forsaken Christianity. Yep. It's from a listener who's black and was raised a devout Southern Baptist, but she's not sure if she believes in God anymore. And she's very worried about how her family may react. She writes, we travel home for the holidays and I constantly live in fear of what will happen when they find out, which they certainly will someday. Outside of this, I struggle personally with race and religion since I see myself as unapologetically black and I have nothing but love for what the church has done for black people historically. I'm not one of those condescending slash argumentative atheist types. I can't stand them. But at the same time, I know that many black people want nothing to do with atheists and agnostics. I don't know if my black family and black people in general would be accepting of me if they knew the truth. Hmm. 
Gene, you're black and agnostic, but you identify as culturally Catholic. I do, I do. Well, according to Pew Research, you and our question asker are in the minority. African Americans are the most religious racial group in the country, with 87% self-identifying as religious and 79% saying that religion is, quote, very important in their lives. That 87% number, I mean, I figured it was high, but I didn't think it would be that high. It seems high to me, too. Yeah. Hmm, 9 in 10. That's a lot. But 20% say they're unaffiliated. But then again, unaffiliated doesn't necessarily mean non-religious. Right, exactly. It probably means they don't go to church, but it also probably means they love them some Jesus or whomever. Black Jesus. Just as an example of how tricky this question can be for people, I actually texted a friend of mine when we got it. She's a professor of divinity. She's taught at historically black colleges. And she declined to talk on the podcast because she's an atheist and she's not out. She said I could quote her text there. Um, Yeah, what's the text? So I said, like, yo, is it okay if we bring you on? She was like, quote, this is the quote. Nah, bro, my mama would have a stroke if I said I didn't believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. (laughs) So this is a woman who talks Bible for a living, right, and is hanging out with Christians all the time, but is also very much in the closet with her face. So... So we called up Mandisa Thomas, <laughs> since your friend wouldn't talk to us. Absolutely. She's the founder and president of an organization called Black Nonbelievers. Mm-hmm. They're a community slash support group, and they host both in-person and online events and discussions for Black folks who don't believe in God. She says, look, there's no rush to tell the fam, do it when you feel ready, but Christmas might not be the right time. And when you are ready, approach it casually in a friendly manner. It doesn't have to be combative, you know, just kind of sit down and maybe have um, maybe just a short uh, conversation with, uh, especially with those who are more open, open minded, maybe starting with them first. My grandmother and I haven't had this conversation and I don't think we ever will. Uh, She's she's staunchly religious. She's 89 years old. I just don't think this is a conversation that uh, would be productive to have but um, with other family members I have and I didn't feel that pressure I actually found that more of my relatives are atheists than I thought now for the black community more broadly there's this long long history of atheism in the U.S. it goes all the way back to slavery where a lot of enslaved people just renounced God and Christianity altogether because you know their thinking was what loving benevolent God would allow such misery upon people Makes sense. Right. And that was a strong intellectual tradition that continues to this day, obviously. Mandisa Thomas pointed out that W.B.E. Du Bois, Zora Neale Hurston, Carter G. Woodson, who's the father of Black History Month, Hubert Henry Harrison, Butterfly McQueen, they were all free thinkers, which was the old-timey term for agnostics and non-believers. So are people like Ta-Nehisi Coates and Jelani Cobb. There's basically no way in which atheism or agnosticism is at odds with Black identity, even if it's still a minority position. Shireen, if you had some belief that you know your parents, your family didn't rock with, would you tell them? Yes, but my parents already broke those barriers by marrying each other. Mm-hmm. You know, so my dad's Muslim, my mom's Catholic. And so I feel like they paved the way for me to be and do whatever I want. Thank you, mom and dad. Hmm. Yeah, I feel I feel like I wouldn't necessarily say something to a bunch of my family members. At the same time, I'm Catholic, so like... If I had to suck it up and go to Mass, Mass is 55 minutes. <laughs> Our right letter writer is a Southern Baptist. That's like a whole commitment. If you go home yeah. for Christmas <laughs> and you finna be in church for four hours, uh, you know what I'm saying? Maybe you're like, funny. enough. This is why I draw this line in the sand. But who knows? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Good luck to you, listener. We hope that helps. 
All right. So y'all may remember a few weeks ago, we answered this question from a white woman who was trying to figure out just how to confront her white relatives during Thanksgiving about beliefs that she felt might be anti-immigrant or racist. Well, this week we heard from a woman of color with a follow-up. Here's Caitlin Rawling from Madison, Wisconsin. Right around the holidays, many of us encourage white people to check their problematic family anytime they say something racist. And I agree with this. I think it's very important for them to have these critical conversations. But what about the people of color with white families? Some people of color with white family members tend to avoid these conversations in order to protect our mental health. For years now, my family has criticized me for being too sensitive or too serious whenever I stand up against anything that they say that is sexist or racist or homophobic. And during this past Thanksgiving, my grandmother, a white liberal woman, said that POCs often use their skin color in order to get ahead in politics. And so my question is, as a biracial black woman, do I need to check my white side of the family every time they say something racist? Jean, this reminds me of something we heard on a past Code Switch episode about casual racism from the writer Nicole Chung. She's Korean. Remember this? Shout out, right. Nicole. Yes, that was very uncomfortable. Her adoptive parents are white, and so is her husband. By the way, she has a memoir about her search for her Korean birth family out next year. Anyway, the story she shared with us is a good example of what happens to people of color with white families around the holidays. Yeah, it was a a couple days after Christmas, and I was at my in-law's house. They had some family friends over, and then there were, like, relatives of these family friends. And inevitably, the conversation turns to, like, pop culture and television because I feel like those are generally sort of safe topics that everybody feels like dissecting and relaxing. Um, Someone mentions, I got to interview Constance Wu from Fresh Off the Boat. And so someone asks me about it, and we're chatting. And then the mother of a family friend looks over at me and says, oh, like, do people ever tell you you look just like everybody on that show? Oh, my God. Everybody. I was like excuse me, just thinking I must have misheard or something. I'm in a space I assume is safe. Uh, Mm -hmm. Right. It's just, it was very jarring. I didn't know how to respond. My two kids are sitting right there. Um, So you just have this moment, and it feels like a lot longer than a moment. In your essay, you take us through what went on in your mind in a matter of seconds. Run us through all of those things that happened. You kind of start with, I must have heard that wrong, like, Is she saying this to actually be mean or offensive? Or was it just a verbal slip? You know, why isn't anybody else saying anything? Am I the only person who even noticed this? I really just had trouble figuring out what to say. And I thought of several different snarky things I could say. I thought about just ignoring it. I thought about trying to get her to explain what she meant, just sort of like let her, you know, dig her own hole. I just really didn't feel like I could say much of anything without ruining the party. If you had to do it over, would you have done anything differently? It's still really tricky to kind of work that mental calculus because just the level of trying to figure out like how different people would react, would everybody feel like they had to jump in and take a side? And when I did sort of smile and laugh and say no and let the subject change, looking back, I think there was definitely relief in that room that I didn't say anything Mm. else, even though I could have like... You both love and hate that moment where everybody just picks up and moves on like nothing happened. Yeah, like the so much psychic energy goes into all those gymnastics she was doing in that moment, you know? I love that she broke down for us what goes on step by step. Yeah, absolutely. But it takes a real toll on you to keep doing that over and over again. 
This woman, Monica Williams, runs the lab for culture and mental health disparities at the University of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And she told us incidents like this can cause major anxiety. And she adds that an array of mental and physical problems are being linked to ongoing experiences with racism, whether they're casual or systematic or not. I mean, just the fact that they're happening all the time, it really takes a toll. We're talking PTSD, OCD, depression, hypertension, diabetes, even cancer. Which is crazy to think about. Um, And she also, you know, said it's a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Like Nicole just said to us, if you say something to your relatives, they get defensive. You don't say anything and they keep saying wild stuff to you. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. her advice is to find out who your allies are in your family, if you have them. Um, So when you go to family events and make sure they have your back, if you do decide to say something and speak up. And if you can, she said, you know, let your family know that you might have to just bounce or bow out. If a relative you know is going to be on some bullshit, it's, mm. it's fun to be there. So, um, again, that won't fly in some families. or some families you will have to show up. Um, you won't be able to bow out. But if that's an option on the table, you should avail yourself of it. And you should also, importantly, try to find a culturally competent therapist to talk to if you can. And don't forget to breathe in the meantime. Deep breaths. <sighs> All right, Shireen, our last question has to do with a holiday that's passed, Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. But we decided to not make Sylvia Artiga, the letter writer, wait until next November 1st to get this answer. Sylvia's dad is Mexican-American. Her mom is from El Salvador. And I am their very begrudgingly assimilated daughter. I recently learned that El Salvador has Dia de los Muertos customs of its own, and it's made me want to research and adopt some of the celebrations. How can I honor the culture without making it all about what I lost through assimilation? How can I pull it off in a place like Seattle? And how can I learn about it when my mom has become very Pentecostal and distanced from such celebrations? Thanks. So when I saw this question, I knew exactly who to call. Okay, I am Professor Carlos Cordova. I am originally from El Salvador. I was born in El Salvador, but I have lived in San Francisco, California since I was 15. He was one of my professors from San Francisco State's Latina slash Latino Studies Department. We called it Raza Studies back when I went there. Anyway, he's a cultural anthropologist who specializes in religion, traditions, art, and popular expressions in Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central America. The Day of the Dead in El Salvador is called El Día de los Difuntos. It's a bit different than how it is practiced in El Salvador than in Mexico, but it's still the honoring of our ancestors, knowing that our ancestors continue to live with us as long as we always remember them. Basically, we go to the cemetery during the day, and we go and give flowers. We call enflorar las tumbas, put the flowers in the tombs. Uh, There are certain foods that we eat that are traditional during that time, some tamales as well as what we called hojuelas de maíz, fry the corn flat uh, bread that we put honey in them. I think uh, in Mexico they call it buñuelos, and that's what we eat. Fried bread? I'm always here for fried bread. With honey. Yeah, listen, Mm. man. Let's do that. You know, I looked up recipes for hojuelas online. There are a bunch, but most call for flour, not cornmeal. Oh, I bet you it tastes better. Also, Professor Cordova says there are plenty of Salvadorans in Seattle. So if your mom's not interested in talking about Dia de los Difuntos, a.k.a. Day of the Deceased, you can use the power of the Internet to find folks who will be. He suggests talking to the elders in the community. 
And when it comes to honoring your culture without making it all about what you lost through assimilation, Professor Cordova says, don't be too hard on yourself. Even he's lost certain things after living in the U.S. for so long, but that doesn't mean they can't be rediscovered. Yes, uh, I think, you know, the issue of culture is very flexible. Uh, One thing about cultures is that cultures are not homogeneous. Culture is rapidly changing from one place to another. And so for this person, you know, to be exploring and asking questions about her identity is perfectly normal. Uh, She would have many elements that might be just uh, dormant in her consciousness, you know, and all of a sudden they might be reawakened in the process of finding out all these things. It's never a mistake to look for your identity and who you are. Kind of reminds me of what Maria Tatar from Harvard was saying earlier when we were talking about Santa Claus, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's people taking these traditions and remixing them and reimagining them that makes them thrive and spread and makes people attach themselves to them and pass them down. Make them your own so they won't get lost or forgotten, Mm -hmm. right? And Sylvia, Professor Cordova says, if you haven't already and you need some more inspiration... See the movie Coco. (laughs) (laughs) It is one of the most beautiful films that I've seen in a long time uh, that really addresses that issue of the Day of the Dead. And even though we have variations in El Salvador, the fact that in El Salvador our heritage is Mesoamerican, he has a great deal of influences coming in from Mexico. Remember me, though I have to say goodbye. Remember me. We're listening to the theme song from Coco right now. It's called Remember Me. It's by Miguel. The R&B singer, not the kid in the film. This is the song giving us life, of course. You can hear Shireen talking about Coco on Pop Culture Happy Hour. (laughs) Check it out. I almost burst into tears because I love it so much. That's our show. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Leah Danella produced this episode, and it was edited by Steve Drummond. And we had original music by Ramtin Arablui. Big shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam. Walter Ray Watson, Karen Grigley-Bates, Adrian Florido, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sammy Yenigan, and Kat Chow. Our intern is Nana Boate. I'm Jean Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Peace, y'all. Peace in the Middle East, like where St. Nicholas is from. Shout out to Turkey. (laughs) 